Well, last Sunday, if you were paying attention, and I guess even if you weren't, uh, I still promised that we were going to have a panel discussion today uh, as an introduction to the book of Revelation, and we are still going to do that. But first, we have the privilege of having Freddie and Candy Harris join us this morning. Uh, Freddie is the director, I guess. Is that your title? Executive director? Supreme Exalted Executive Director of... (laughs) Praise International, which is one of the ministry organizations that we support. Their uh, purpose, their focus is to encourage and support pastors primarily in third world countries around the year, around the world rather. So um, we're going to have Freddie come up and just share a little bit this morning about what they're doing and why they're doing it and whatever else he wants to say. So thank thank you, Freddie. Thank you, Marty. Yeah. Uh, Supreme. You know, when I'm in Africa, they call me the, the worldwide director of Praise International. Uh, so I don't know if you can get any higher than that. Um, yeah, I, I'm the only full-time worker for Praise International, but I am very thankful for uh, several volunteers that help it a lot easier because I'm just not administrative uh, for those of you who might know me. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that I, I don't know everybody here. I, I recognize a lot of faces but praise God that I see some new faces here. You know, I, this is my home church. Believe me, you haven't seen me around for a long time. And I'm, I was talking with Al and uh, Randy. I, I can blame COVID for that presently. I, I have to stop blaming COVID eventually. But uh, I was just thinking, you know, um, I was born in Prosser. You know, um, actually last week I celebrated uh, 67 years. of. <laughs> yeah, I was born right, right, right across the way here at the... And, uh, and, I, uh, and I still, I'm 67 years old, and I still haven't figured out that I can't grow a beard, okay? I, I'm about ready to accept that, that fact, okay? And, um, and that it's okay if I forget to wear my, my, my fancy dress shoes on, this, on a Sunday morning because I left them at home. But, uh, but, God, but God, is, God is good, isn't he? I mean, you know, it's, it's been, last year was a hard year. The year before that was a hard year for many reasons. Uh, but as, as believers... You know, God is good, and he's, he's above all this. And we know that, that God has the victory, and the church is going to be triumphant, right? I mean, uh, we were, uh, about three years ago, I had the privilege of the first time going to Russia, and uh, we've been to Eastern Europe many times, but I finally, because we, we sponsor pastors in Russia, and, you know, Russia's on the news quite a bit, and, uh, you know, we hear a lot of negative things, but I, I know that you believe, you believe there are wonderful believers in Russia who, who just love the Lord and are, have a lot of faith. And they actually, there's actually some new churches being planted in Russia, even though evan- public evangelism is against the law. They're still evangelizing. They get away with it by faith and by, you know, craziness. Uh, th- there's a pastor who, he was our, the director of our praise ministry in uh, in Russia, his name is Anatoly Yamaryuk. I think you pronounce it like that. Uh, but he's he's been retired several times. He had kind of a little bit of a heart issue, and so if, when we were there, we were able to attend the dedication of like the third different ch- third church that he planted. We were there able to attend the dedication of that church, and it was wonderful. And at that time, standing on the stage, uh, uh, I think it was on uh, on Easter morning in the dedication, he said, "Well." I'm going to start a new church. And this guy is retired several times. He says, I'm going to start a new church, you know. And so that was three years ago. Well, right now, that church is about ready to be dedicated again. Another church, a new church. This guy, you know, full of energy 
And uh, it is exciting to see that, you know, politically there may be terrible things happening, but the church is still growing, and it will grow. Uh, we, we were able to go uh, right before COVID really hit uh, in uh, 20, you know, 2020. Is that what it was? Uh, and at the end of January, uh, we had a trip planned for, for Cuba, and, uh, you know, I think they talked about 20, uh, January 31st being the day that they had to close some international travel. I don't know if to China or something like that. But on, on January 31st, 2020, we went to Cuba. We didn't even, we had heard about COVID, but, you know, it's like uh, it'll probably never, you know, hit, hit America. But, um, but we, uh, we went there, and uh, it, was, uh, it was an amazing trip. And that was our second trip in Cuba. And but to meet these these believers where it is also in a you know strong strong communist country uh very much against evangelism and yet these pastors by by faith are preaching the gospel and the church in cuba is growing and they do evangelism campaigns where they will have like two thousand people come to a church for evangelism and like how do they get away with this and uh but it's it's by it's by crazy faith it really is. And so praise God for that he is working all over the world. Uh, then, uh, see, about a year ago this month, we went uh, to, uh, to Guinea and to Ivory Coast to visit pastors there. And, you know, COVID was still kind of, you know, around, but it was kind of doing pretty, doing, it was pretty low in risk in uh, Ivory Coast and, and, Ivory, uh, and Guinea. So we, we went, but we did have to take six COVID tests in, in two weeks, okay? That hurts your nose every single time, just so, just so you know. Uh, but God, uh, God uh, keeps us safe, and we were able to see over 200 pastors. Uh, and that's a lot of pastors. And what we would do is we would tell our leaders, can you just arrange meetings for us with pastors? We traveled all across uh, uh, Guinea. We were landed in the capital and all across Guinea. And, you know, roads in in africa are terrible there's a lot of and there's other countries where they're probably really terrible but honestly this these were the best, worst roads in i mean imagine the worst road that you have never ever driven on and and this is like 10 times worse honestly i am not exaggerating i am not exaggerating i mean there's like constant bumping i mean there's, there's not a a second of not bumping it's a and this is a national road crossing i uh, crossing crossing guinea uh, and, uh, you know, it, but, you know, it's worth it. It really is worth it. Candy, you know, got car sick, and I don't know if she would say it's, it was worth it. Was it it's worth it, Candy? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the drowning. <laughs> but, you know, we just praise God. We're going from town, you know, town to town, visiting pastors along the way. And not just seeing them, but listening to their testimonies, each one of them. Because we were there to hear them. We weren't there to, we, well, we also got to encourage them verbally uh, as a group, but each one of them, we listened to each one of their testimonies. And we wanted to hear what God is doing in their lives. We wanted to hear how we can help better. And I tell you, those testimonies, a lot of those testimonies just brought you to tears. You know, uh, what they put up with, you know, sickness, death, uh, um, persecution. And, and yet the church in Guinea is alive and well and they just bless your heart so much, and it's a privilege for us to meet these servants of the Lord and to hear them worship God in their own language. And, and 
And then in Ivory Coast, we, we, it turned out that the border, we were going to drive across into Ivory Coast, and the border, they had said before we left that the border was going to be open, and then when we got there, and they said, no, the border's not open, you know, full Jew. And so we had to drove that terrible, terrible trip back to Conakry, and like, it was like, Lord, okay, you know, this is what we got to do, and, you know, uh, and the man plans his ways, but God knows, you know, what he's supposed to do. So that's the way we, as we prayed, we said, God, you know, and so we drove that that terrible, terrible trip again. God helped us, God protected us, and uh, met, met to Conakry, uh, the capital there where we landed, and we were getting another another COVID test because we had to get them everywhere we went. And uh, in the line, the la- lady said, you're a pastor. Can you stick around after you go through? I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. And so we we, we finished, and the lady came over and, and uh, said, I just, I haven't told anybody about this, but I need prayer. Would you pray for me? And, uh, and she says, I haven't told anybody about this, but I felt like God wanted me to tell you this. So right there, God brought us back to Conakry so we could pray for this lady who had a Muslim background, but she really needed prayer, and she was asking for prayer. You know, there are no mistakes. You know, are there, you know? And, and then we went to, we flew to, to Abidjan and, and had a chance to visit an, with another, uh, I don't know, hundred pastors and their wives, uh, some in a big meeting that we had, and some just visit them in their homes. And one of those pastors that we met, a faithful servant of God who visits, he's a pastor, but he also visits prisons all over the southern part of Ivory Coast, and he encourages local evangelical Christians to get involved with them to visit these prisoners, because they're not like prisons in America. Uh, They brought fresh food to these prisoners and, and clean clothes and some gifts from family members. And, uh, just a wonderful man of God, and just like a month ago, he died. We had no, he vis- invited us to his home, and it was just full of energy. We found out he died, and he, he had uh, pancreatic cancer, and not a lot of people knew. We, we certainly had no idea, but I know God will uh, bless him. Now, I, 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 I don't want to push his, <laughs> his kindness uh, as far as time, so I just want to say, uh, pray for our next trip. It was going to be in February, but we're going to put it because of national elections in Mali, and it's going to be uh, there's a lot of terrorism already. Uh, they, I asked them if it, you know, if it's good to come in February. They said it'd be better to come in in April, uh, Easter time. So, pray for that. Uh, we're going to do something very unique this time. God just put it on my heart. Uh, it was very uh, because we've never done this before. Uh, is we're, we're going to fund the the digging of two wells. In Mali, uh, Mali is uh, two-thirds desert. Uh, Four thousand five hundred children, about give or take, die every year of unclean from unclean water. Four thousand five hundred children die, and this the church can have an impact on these these their villages through ha- providing clean water for this. So we're we're going to build the first uh, dig. The first well is in a or, a Christian orphanage where there's a church. Where our, we we f- sponsored that pastor, and then we're going to d- uh, dig the second well in another another village where there's a dispensary with no water, and, and so uh, you can pray for that because when we we're going to be there, they're going to dedicate these wells. All the village village people will be there, and the authorities, and we're going to be able to share share Christ with those people, and, and, I, and they're they're going to be really grateful because our our leader says that he knows that they'll be grateful. So please pray for that. The, the, the wells are, were about $12,000 a piece. God's provided it. We have 20, God's provided 24000 through very generous people like, like you who see 
the need and care. And, and so uh, we've been supportive for this church for a long time, and I just uh, I thank you so much for your financial support and for your prayers for us. Welcome to 2022, the year with the motto, well, how much worse can they get? We don't want to know. Here's the book of Revelation. <laughs> we'll show you. <laughs> we got pictures and everything. <laughs> so, we do have nursery, but there is no children's church today. Um, so if you need to uh, attend the nursery. <laughs> There, yeah, we, we will impose an age limit on this one. <laughs> Children's Church were a little more fluid. but <clears throat> So as I mentioned last Sunday, uh, our initial approach, our, our introduction into the study of the book of Revelation is going to be a bit different from every other book that we've uh, taught over the last couple of years. And our approach is different primarily because the book of Revelation is a bit different from every other book that we have taught. Um, and because it is so different, it has led to much speculation. It has led to many varying interpretations. Uh, and dare I say it, uh, a fair amount of misunderstanding over the years. Uh, it is a book full of drama and tension and spectacle, opposing forces of good and evil. And we know that God wins in the end. Amen. So it's not really so much a, a, a whodunit, um, but many approach this book as more of a how and when done it. <laughs> we think we have to figure out all these all these things in there and when it's going to happen. And, and and really, if you if you just read it through, it reads more like a like a movie script in places, right? It's it's very visual. It's got amazing CGI visuals of, of dragons and, and beasts. And we can easily, based on just a reading of the text, we can, we can mentally conjure up these fantastic images of extraordinary beasts enjoined in extraordinary battles, like Gandalf at the, at the bridge with the Balrog. You know, that's, that's kind of the imagery that we can get. But we can also uh, easily fixate on some of the more symbolic and supernatural events of the book as well. So... What or who is this 666 person? Is it a person? Is it a, is it a thing? Is it a, is it a spirit? What, what is this? What's the mark of the beast? Does it come through a hypodermic needle? No. Well. And, if, <laughs> and we, we, we tend to think if we read all of the signs just right, surely we can pinpoint the day, the minute, the hour of Christ's return as many have done over the years, and have been wrong every time. Or perhaps when we read this book, we like to think, well, Christ is surely going to come and at least save the church before things get really bad. Or just too hard. Maybe he's going to come before it gets too hard for us. Or, or is that what it says? This book raises a lot of questions. And we can easily get rabbit-trailed and sidetracked into majoring in the minor issues 
rather than focusing on the big picture. And the big picture we're going to try to continue to repeat all the way through is it is a call to worship. In whatever circumstance, in whatever age, it is a call to worship. So we're going to lay some ground rules here before we get started so you can better understand how we're going to approach this. We've got a few assumptions that we're going to base this on. Uh, first, we believe that the best way to understand Scripture, especially challenging, vexing, confusing Scripture, the best way to understand Scripture is through the lens of other Scripture. So that as we're going through these verses, we can stay consistent with our interpretation, consistent with our understanding. That's how we try to make sure we're not reading more into the text than is there. How does it compare, how does it compare with the rest of God's revealed word? And this is especially true for the book of Revelation. In that, I think this book demands our attention and inclusion of other scripture. There are close to 250 direct quotes from the Old Testament. There are another 500 allusions or, or kind of mild references to Old Testament verses. It is consistent within itself, and we need to be able to see that. And so we're going to see John's vision here, really God's vision to John. Uh, it's going to rely heavily on Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. So you're going to hear a lot about Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. And not only do these books help us understand what John is seeing, the, the, the image that he's been given, but it also confirms for us over and over and over and over that God has a plan. He had a plan from the very beginning. It was hinted at in the garden. More lines and more context and more texture were, were revealed over the ages through prophets and their visions. We, we, we know about God's progressive revelation over time. He unveils more of the mystery as we go on. And that should give us some sense of comfort that we, we can be convinced, we can know that God is in control. God has always been in control. Even as he continues to unveil elements of the mystery. Maybe not as much as we want. Maybe not in the way that we want. But we know that, that based on how God has slowly unve unveiled pieces of this over the years, it seems kind of foolish for us to believe that the book of Revelation is going to answer every end time question that we have that's not how the rest of the scripture has worked or that it somehow secretly spells out all of the right answers if we just have that secret decoder ring we can figure it all out so the purpose of this book I think is really no different from every other book of the Bible 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof or correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book helps in that regard. And with this understanding, I think it necessarily imposes some boundaries on how we view or how we interpret Scripture. Uh, for example, many people believe that the book of Revelation is nothing more than a guidebook about the end times. Its, it's focus is, is purely futuristic. It's looking ahead. And I think this verse causes us to question that approach some. How, how does that apply to all churches at all times if it's just about the end? How is it profitable for reproof and teaching throughout the church age if it's all focused on the end? So another assumption, another starting point for understanding this book is that there, there must be uh, some teaching here. There must be some principles that apply to all readers at all times. It's not just those in the future. 
In fact, the book starts off with Revelation 1, verses 3. Blessed is the man who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we're, we're, we're pretty comfortable in our belief that the book of Revelation has something to say, something relevant for the church, something to teach us now, just as it did in John's day when he wrote it. So Randy is going to start with some basic background information about the book. Uh, Al is going to provide a little more background information, some, some, some texture to, to the book. And then we're each going to attempt... <laughs> to describe some of the various ways that people have tried to interpret this book over the years. And you'll probably hear things in there that you recognize or maybe some things that make you uncomfortable or, or whatever, I don't know. Um, but that's kind of how we're approaching this this morning. So uh, we're going to give kind of generic background about the, the times and the church and the writers. Um, and then we're going get, to start getting more into how different people have viewed this over time. Um, so before we start, Al, would you try a prayer for this? Attempt some see prayerful how, approach. See how big my faith is. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I thank you, Father, that we are looking into your word. And I thank you that every part of your word has a purpose for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I thank you that's true of the book of Revelation as well. So I ask, Father, that you would help us to concentrate on the message you have for us, the message that you want us to carry forward, that we also grow on our... Uh, the depth of how we worship you as we see how you control events, the things that we see are not as they really are, uh, and that we would understand that you have a plan, and that plan has never wavered from before the creation of the world. Just think that we have confidence in you and confidence in how you help us to understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the biggest challenge for me this morning is doing this in 10 minutes instead of an hour. <laughs> Those of you who have been to some of the introductions we've done before. Um, I'm to advance that screen. Okay. While there are New Testament scholars who hold alternate views of date and authorship, we're going to get into that a lot, the consensus really both ancient and modern has been what you see on that screen. Uh, the author, John the Apostle, uh, we, we know from uh, Revelation 1.9 that John was, uh, as he re described himself here, your partner and partner in tribulation of the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we'll look at a map in a minute, but uh, it'll have Patmos on it. But out the island of Patmos is about 80 miles off the uh, shore of uh, Asia Minor, and a two-day trip by boat in the first century. And it was not a prison colony. There are some people who have speculated on that in the past. It was, however, a, a location of military camp or military base. Uh, the phrase that John uses on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus implies that John had been exiled to the island. Now, and that's pretty easy to figure out because exile was very common in the uh, first century Roman world particularly if you had a nonviolent person that was involved that was you thought was disruptive or dangerous to the social order or the government stability, you just send them to the farthest island away you can think of and let them stay there. So they're out of the picture. The date, around the mid-90s uh, A.D., uh, this is uh, 
some debate about that also, but uh, what was probably important about this date was you're coming to the end right now of the emperor, Roman Emperor Domitian's 15 years in reign. Uh, the since Augustus, way back in the B.C. period, the uh, Roman emperors included the title of Divi Filius in their multiple titles they had, which means son of God. And most of the emperors were deified at their death. Domitian started out as a pretty capable administrator and doing things right, but he took a real negative turn later in his life. In fact, that turn was so negative that there was a rumor in Rome about this, you know, about the time that the Emperor Nero had come back in his person. So if you know anything about Nero, he was not a fun guy to be around. Uh, unless you want to be a human torch. Unless you want to be a human torch, right, <coughs> as a Christian. Uh, Domitian became increasingly paranoid, cruel as a tyrant, uh, took pride in being addressed this, as Dominus et Deus, which means Lord and God. Uh, not surprisingly, Christians ran afoul of that imperial practice. Uh, they insisted on ascribing those terms just to the Creator God. In fact, John, in the, in the visions of the heavenly throne, he sees in chapter 4, Revelation, the, the 24 elders falling down before the throne and saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed, and you were created. That's the only time the phrase Lord and God is used in the entire Bible. And so it's probably there intentionally as a reflection of this uh, practice that Domitian had. Now, Domitian wouldn't last a whole lot longer. He was assassinated in 96, but it did open up a time of kind of struggle and transition in the Roman hierarchy, which caused some confusion. The purpose of the book as uh, Marty suggests, is primarily exhortation, encouragement, and blessing. Uh, Marty read 1 verse 3 about the blessing that's promised, and uh, John ends it up pretty much the same way in 22.7 with the words that he hears from Jesus, that, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. The recipients, you can advance the slide there now, uh, were the churches in Western Asia Minor. We've talked about several of them in the course of our studies we've just recently done in Paul's letters. Uh, this is Western Turkey, uh, modern Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. The order of the specific messages to each of the seven churches in Revelation uh, follows a natural circuit of travel that you can see on the follow on the map up here. Uh, if you enter Asia through the major port at Ephesus, and then you travel north along the coast to Smyrna and then to Pergamum before turning south and inland to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And that's the order that these, letter, these messages appear in the book. Uh, then you can go from there back to Ephesus and you close your circuit. The tradition is that John primarily resided in Ephesus, and this may well have been a common uh, route that he took in his ministry to these churches. What's more important, I think, as Marty hinted at, for our delving into the book of Revelation, is the circumstances. So would you hit that again? We've got another one up there. Yeah. I'm going to borrow from a journal article by New Testament scholar David De Silva that I think summarized these circumstances well. And he suggests 
four challenges being faced by the recipient churches in the first century. I'm hoping that some of these challenges will sound familiar to us. The first one, maybe not so much, but it, I think we'll get there. Uh, the hostility <laughs> of the synagogue. Uh, in the first few decades of the Christian church, the Romans couldn't tell the difference between the Jews and the Christians. They thought Christianity was just a sect of some kind of Judaism. Now, what was important about that was the Jews were a legal religion. And uh, uh, they were allowed to pay a tax instead of participating in some of the various uh, rites and civil things that they did that involved the paganism and polytheism of the uh, early times here in Rome and Greco-Roman world. Um, as the church grew, though, it became pretty clear to the authorities that maybe this wasn't an ethnic or was part of this ethnic group of Judaism. This seems to be something different. I mean, there's people from all ethnicities that are now in this group. Um, now, the Jews became concerned, too, because they were on pretty fragile standing right now with Rome, because this is 40 years after the Jewish revolt, where in which you had the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and so uh, they began to separate, distance themselves, and do things in their synagogue worship that actually would make a Christian uncomfortable. And so between these two things happening, uh, the Romans figured out that this was a separate group. They aren't going to get this exemption as a legal religion that the uh, Jews have. In fact, one of the things that really alarmed them, that they almost found repulsive, was these guys, they welcomed people from all ethnicities and all social strata, all together in one place. Uh, this is from the, one of the most stratified societies in history. <laughs> <laughs> that this is coming from. The church had lost its standing. It was no longer a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire. That created the next challenge, the pressure to conform externally. Uh, this really came in two forms. One was the imperial cult. Uh, the communities, one of the ways they, you know, curried favor with the uh, Roman emperors was they would allow these cults to be developed of, of, the, an, of the emperor, a cult of the emperor and the emperors that preceded. The, at the center of this very expansive Roman economy, the cities in Asia Minor were more enthusiastic than most about this and their loyalty. Uh, their temples and civic religion formed really a, something that everybody was uh, supposed to you know, be involved in. You were participate in these holidays. You were participate in these rites. Uh, to do so was deemed impious. If you didn't do so, you were impious. You were uh, irreligious. You were antisocial, and often illegal to the point of treason. On a similar kind of level, but much smaller, was the economic cults, if you want to call them that, and the pressure they exerted. If you were a Christian and you're also a member of a trade association or a guild you would have been expected to appropriately acknowledge the patron deity of that guild or that trade. In another aspect of the economy and social life, if you were a slave, you were expected to honor the gods of your master. Failure to conform could result in unemployment, beatings, imprisonment, and even execution. 
This kind of leads us to the third challenge that De Silva identifies, and that's the eternal threat, internal threat of accommodation. Uh, with all these external pressures, the, the detritians were tempted to take a little laxer attitude maybe toward their differences with the world around them. I mean, you can kind of hear them reasoning, you know, say, well, maybe it's really not such a big deal to compromise or to conform to some aspects of the world around us. I mean, after all, how are we supposed to make a living, you know, support our families? And, and you know, if we don't do some of that, doesn't that mean that we really won't be out there taking our message to the, the bigger society? Are we going to cut ourselves off? Uh, this is probably the position that was being promoted by the Nicolaitans when we get to the messages to the churches. They show up in Ephesus and Pergamum. The danger, of course, is that the church would absorb so many values in the world, from the world around them, that they would no longer be distinct in any way. <clears throat> the temptation was toward compromise. And the worst posture the church could take, if it's going to tempt them toward compromise, <coughs> is complacency. And that leads us to the final point that uh, De Silva makes. I think is good, the distortion of the church community. This involved the church allowing its shared allegiance to Jesus as Lord and a biblical worldview to weaken through neglect or distraction or just plain ignorance. Uh, to quote De Silva on this, he says, The Christian communities espoused a set of meetings that denied the objectives of the society and so became a deviant subgroup, a foreign body within the larger body, participating in an alternate definition of reality. So John exhorted the churches to reinforce their borders by knowing and affirming their beliefs, holding tight the truth in the face of lies and idols dominating the larger society, and committing themselves to patient endurance in the face of suffering just like we saw John describing himself on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I think it's where this becomes significant is that for Christians throughout history, a consistent biblical worldview uh, holding one has meant connecting, staying connected to this big story of salvation and redemption that, that Marty kind of got to that you see that starts in the Old Testament and carries all the way through to the very end of the Bible and the book of Revelation. It answers the question, important questions, that people aren't really interested in asking themselves today. Where did we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? In a fallen world, this connection can only be maintained by diligence and commitment to the truth, and that's truth with a capital T. The Apocalypse of John is intended, I believe, to encourage Christian communities by lifting the curtain so we kind of got the theme here, to reveal the cosmic revolt against the creator uh, that started back in the fall and the ultimate victory over that revolt by King Jesus. It seeks to infuse a new perspective and a renewed hope into the challenges of living as dissidents in a world order and followers of returning king. I think it's especially important to keep the circumstances of these churches in mind because that's how John starts Revelation. There's a most important place for them and what he's going to go through next. Uh, as we look at the different approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation, and particularly as we get into the text in the months ahead. Oh, with that, go ahead. With that in mind, uh, 
you have to, if you talk to a lot of Christians to find out if they've read the book of Revelation in any detail, they'd probably say no. And some of those who have read it say they won't do it again. <laughs> There's not a realization often that it's written actually as a blessing in its hearing or in its reading. And I think that's unique among the books of the Bible to actually promise a blessing for the reading or hearing of its contents. So because of that, many Christians are fearful of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a book that a lot of us avoid, uh, or maybe we read quickly because it's got a lot of very strange images in it, strange uh, beings. It has really bloody conflicts, and it has a really confusing structure. It doesn't. It shouldn't. Be, it should be linear, and it's not. <laughs> uh, but there's another reason why Christians tend to be wary of Revelation, and that is that. Uh, because there's always been these countless attempts to try to link events in history back to the book of Revelation. What one, one scholar calls newspaper eschatology. <laughs> eschatology being the study of the last times. So it's, and a recent example, kind of Marty alluded to, was linking the, the, uh, the mark of the beast with the COVID-19 vaccine. Now the end result of that was either you rolled your eyes because, oh no, here we go again, or fear, because we are, or maybe someone that we love might have actually taken on the mark of the beast. So there's two types of fear at play when you look at this book. One is there's a fear that many feel towards the book, and there's also a fear that many feel after they read it. There's a fear that God criticizes. There's also a fear that God promotes in the Bible. As the book begins, uh, Jesus says to John, fear not, I am the first and the last. That means don't be scared, uh, even though I am your Lord. But there's another kind of fear that actually leads to devotion and to worship. In chapter 14, we read, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him. So fear is linked with worship. So the right kind of fear is relation-based. It, it, it's reverence. It brings to mind all that it means for God to be God. So instead of distancing us from God, it's supposed to draw us closer to God, but with weak knees. We're drawn to God, but with trepidation, because we know he's holy and we know we certainly are not. Now that's the kind of fear that Revelation celebrates and how it leads to worship. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, as you, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So in other words, Revelation addresses those who fear God. It exhorts them to praise God. So one of the purposes of the book is to stir this kind of reverential worship among those who read it. Because John himself asks in chapter 15, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So these righteous acts disclosed in Revelation are really designed to cause worship among all peoples, all genres, all races and nations. And of course, there's a lot of other purposes of this book, too. One of those is that we don't see the events in our world as ultimate reality. God's working behind the scenes constantly to bring about his plans and his purposes through world events that we find perplexing, confusing, or causing despair. 
So keep in mind that the book of Revelation is given to reveal. That's in its name itself. So the question comes, how can all these purposes, and then the ones I didn't even mention, and John's revelation be best communicated to the people living in AD 100 or so, and for people living in every year since that time, including us? What's the best way of communicating this? So God uses a combination of three main literary approaches to help us understand what he's up to. Uh, and the first one is, in Revelation 1-3, which you've already seen, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So it pre- Revelation presents itself as the climax of prophecy, drawing together images from the Old Testament prophetic visions and bringing them to fulfillment towards the end of the age. I mean, there might, there's, there might not be as many quotes in the, of Old Testament prophets as you might like, but the images are everywhere. So if you, and as Marty mentioned, if you want to get a good background to the book, unfortunately you're going to have to immerse yourself in the books of Ezekiel, at least the visions in Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Zechariah. Which makes good sense when you think about it. Those three prophets wrote at the time when the nation of Israel had been taken captive into Babylon. The people there were either telling them ahead of time, Daniel was there, or Zechariah afterwards, telling them that this is not the end of the world. You, God has not deserted you. You are in enemy territory, but God still has a plan. And the book of Revelation is, doing, I think, doing the same thing for the church. You're in enemy territory. There is an end in view. And so he, what John does uh, is to pick up the revelations that are given, the visions in the Old Testament, and he carries them through from the time of Jesus that they were pointing to to the end of time. So he links together the, the prophecies from the Old Testament to the New, and then pa- passing them all the way through to the very end, to when Jesus returns to gather his people and there's a new earth established. But as we all looked at before, prophecy is not necessarily just a, a literal writing of history ahead of time. It's primarily a vivid way of, of concentrating the past and the present and the future, all those events together to motivate God's people to live holy lives. Holy lives in the presence of the Holy One who inhabits eternity, recognizing that God controls all events in order to further His glory. So that's the first type of literary uh, approach, literary type of literature that's in the book of Revelation. The second one is the epistle. Now this this form of writing is very familiar to us. We think we know this one because we spent 2021 looking at epistles that Paul had written to various churches, some of which are in the same area we're going to be looking at. So in like manner to Paul, John addresses the situation and circumstances of his readers. This means the door, or the, that the book has to be tied to the historical association of these seven churches in Asia Minor that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. In order to do a, a, a proper job of interpretation, we really have to understand what it meant to the original hearers, and only then can we get in our hermeneutical helicopter and come to the present time and try to ex- explain it and then apply it to our own lives. We have to do the hard work of going back and try to understand what it meant to the original hearers. And the book, we're going to find out right away, was not written as a general tract about the end of history, but it really was intended for local churches in an area where John had already ministered, where John was a known quantity. So we're going to try to avoid newspaper eschatology, 
or reading current events into the book at a, at a real detailed level. Because modern readers, I'm convinced, are not better interpreters of the book than the original hearers. <laughs> so the book itself is not intended to be read in terms of current events. So we're going to do the best we can to understand the book as it was written to the, and heard by the first individuals that, that actually had a chance to read or hear it. There's a third type of literary genre here, and that's apocalyptic. That's one you know, people tend to think of when they see the book of Revelation. They forget the other two, because this is the weird one. <laughs> Nowhere does John say he's writing in this kind of genre, this kind of literature. Although the first word in the book is apocalypsis, which is a Greek word that we just transliterate as apocalypse, which means reveal. So the visionary nature of the commission that's given to John, maybe that's, maybe that's a hint right there as what's to come. And remember that that nature of the commission was given to John by the voice of one like a son of man, which is write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So Revelation comes to us in writing, but it's literature that paints the scenes that John has actually seen and trying to write it in a way that communicates to us what he has seen. Now, apocalyptic literature was very common in the first century, especially among the Jewish people. It uses really vivid symbols that, related, that relate to the end of the world by predicting widespread destruction as civilization comes to an end and evil is finally defeated, which, under persecution, is a very attractive way of expressing what's going on. So Revelation really is a book of symbols in motion. What John sees in his visions is the true character of the events, true character of the individuals and the forces, even though their appearance is quite different from what we can observe. Because one of the key themes of the book is that things are not what they seem. And beyond that, the true identities that are portrayed in the visions are the opposite, really, of how they appear in the world. So to convey spiritual realities, John uses very vivid symbols. I mean, a picture can indeed be worth a thousand words. But the, but the challenge of symbolic language is the fact it can be ambiguous. It can be quite difficult and maybe not possible to discover what the exact points of comparison are between two things that are only alike in some ways. It's a similar problem that we face when we try to understand Jesus' parables. But of course now we're not dealing with earthly things, we're dealing with otherworldly beings. And the ambiguity of symbols that are foreign to us accounts for a whole lot of the confusion about how to understand this book. And another reason why Revelation is so foreign to our understanding is because the book was written to a church under attack. Over my life, the emphasis when dealing with persecution is stay away from idols. Deal with idols in your own life. You know, Make sure that you worship God in a true and spiritual way. Persecution was subtle, and so we're concerned about idolatry. But as you all know, that is changing rapidly right before our eyes. As our culture moves ever more closely to resemble that pagan first century, the book of Revelation takes on a whole new meaning. I think we're going to discover why this book is so popular among Christians who do face persecution, as opposed to our life of ease. which is going to lead to us interpreting the book that's not truly relevant to us, but to some future time when things get really bad. That's always the temptation. Things could get worse. 
So along with that, there are four major ways that people have approached the book of Revelation when it comes to how it's interpreted. Back one. Back one more. Stages? Back one to the, the four approaches. Yeah, that's that one. It is? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're all there. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't see that far, so I guess. <laughs> a bigger screen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a far side cartoon. <laughs> Where's, where's the bullseye? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's, there's four basic interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation. Some, one of which you're probably very familiar with, the other three maybe not quite so much. Uh, there's the preterist approach, the historist, historicist approach, futurist, and idealist. Now, the three of us have each chosen at least one of these approaches. I ended up with two. Because they're pretty, pretty, pretty close. They're pretty closely related. <laughs> <clears throat> but before I begin, I'm going to make some disclaimers. Kind of, uh, kind of pair or uh, bringing up what you brought up too. The la- these labels are somewhat nebulous. <laughs> they're pretty broad in general, and for each approach, there's a spectrum of understandings within that approach. So just by labeling something doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what position a person might hold. Also, I'll let you know that there are Orthodox Christians, who you, some of whom you would recognize, who hold to each of these four. And they're not liberal, they're not idiots. There are four, there are people who hold to all four, or any one of these four. I mean, I can remember, I was told years ago that my failure to obtain a pastorate was because my view of the, of the my I did not agree with, totally with the futurist approach that the church was taking, and therefore that meant that I was a closet liberal and could not be trusted. <laughs> oh, so I am intimately familiar with... Prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> if only they knew. Uh, so yeah, that I have to admit I have a bit of a jaundiced approach to one of these approaches uh, we're going to look at. Uh, but we're going to explore these approaches, though, with the understanding that uh, our salvation and our commitment to orthodoxy is not dependent on how we approach this book. Amen. We can, and actually we must, model how to interact with one another when we differ on issues that don't affect our eternal destiny. So regardless of what your approach you take to this book, if we can agree that Jesus is coming back bodily for his church, and also that he's sovereign over all the events that occur between now and then, I think we can agree to disagree on the details on how to interpret the book. We can be idiots on the lesser things. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I know I am. But. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to present the historicist approach. That's probably the one you're least familiar with. <clears throat> I'm also going to include the, the preterist approach because they're kind of closely related. So this view really teaches that Revelation is a symbolic representation that presents the course of history from the apostles' life through the end of the age. So the symbols, you can go to the next one, the symbols in the apocalypse are, are correspond to events in the history of the church, especially in the Middle East and Europe. So the letters to the seven churches represent seven time periods in the history of the church from the ascension of Jesus to when he returns in glory. And prophecies are fulfilled in historical events. Now, of course, the seven churches 
in the beginning of the book did not foresee there's going to be this long period of time between their life and when Christ is going to return. But they could understand the visions that John described as real events that involve people and involve institutions on earth. So the original hearers of Revelation would understand that God orchestrates world events so that everything occurs in his timing. The fact that the church is still around 2,000 years later wouldn't really change their understanding of how God controls events to bring things on earth to a close before he brings about a new earth. Now Prater, as Praterist, it actually it comes from the Latin word that means uh, past. So this is a historicist understanding of the book with a shorter timeline pertaining to its fulfillment in history. So rather than seeing this is a, uh, a long, s several stages in church history, the Preterist sees that the vast majority of the prophecies that are in the book of Revelation were fulfilled by AD 70 at the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. So the visions of Revelation they see as events happening in world history, but see that the prophecies of Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew on the discourse on the Mount of Olives, and Revelation were fulfilled in the first century with the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So chapters 1 to 3 in the book describe the conditions of the seven churches in Asia Minor prior to the Jewish war that went on from about A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. And the remaining chapters of Revelation and Jesus' Olivet Discourse also describe the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. So it sees the visions of Daniel as being fulfilled in Jesus' time on earth and Revelation picking up the baton and carrying it forward to the destruction of the temple by the Romans and then on to the end of time. So most preterists believe that most of the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, but the chapters 20 through 22 point to future events such as the future resurrection of believers and a return of Christ to earth. Now, of course, since it's a prophecy of the future destruction of Jerusalem, preterists end up having to hold to a pre-70 pre AD date for the writing of the book. Otherwise, it wouldn't be future. So John was writing specifically to the church of his day and had only its situation in mind. So this letter was written then to encourage the saints to persevere under the persecution of the Roman Empire, which is going to get severe. I think there are, some, there are some good reasons to support this view. One of them is that Jesus stated at the very end of the Olivet Discourse, his teaching on, from the Mount of Olives, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, generation usually refers to 40 years. And the fall of Jerusalem would then fit within the time that Jesus predicted. This is reinforced in Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, second, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote a very detailed account of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, and it links very closely with the events that are described in the book of Revelation. A lot of the symbolism matches the events that actually occurred. And, of course, this view would also be directed right at the first hearers to help them understand what was going to come. So if you have a difficult time with those approaches, if you find that difficult to, if you don't, they're not to your liking, and fortunately, you're going to love what Randy has to tell you about futurism. <laughs>
So the future approach, I got the easy one here. I'm not sure why necessarily, but uh, uh, approach to appreciate uh, interpreting Revelation is probably best known, I think, to everybody. This is true in part uh, thanks to books like the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry Jenkins. Uh, there's been movies. Uh, there's been uh, um, very popular teachers that this is you know almost all they all, all they talk about. Uh, it's also was was I think made more common, more popular by the Schofield Reference Bible, which is published in back at the turn of the last century and was the most widely used Bible for the first part of the century. And, uh, and there's just a lot of the study Bibles that have followed since that that are not King James, but are modern translations, um, take up the same type of approach to thing. All the notes have in there, all these many of the things that uh, go with the futurist view. Now, if you, if you think of futurism in those terms, you may think, well, didn't Al already talk about some of that with the historicists? Yeah, in some ways, yeah. There's a real overlap with some of these things. Um, the thing that the Schofield Bible and these and the, and the more popular uh, presentations of this come from is uh, a theology, a theology, a theological background of what's called uh, classic dispensationalism. And dispensation here refers to a system of organizing history of God, the redemption history across the Bible, different segments, different settings, very much like Al was talking about with historicists. You get some of that in there as well. Uh, one of its primary uh, features involves the distinction between Israel and the church. That's very important in a dispensation idea. Uh, is the, the newer studied Bibles, like I talked about, uh, are maybe not the classic form of dispensation. A lot of them are, are revised or a... Uh, more updated dispensationalism. What is less well known, however, is that this futurist approach includes, uh, as we already, as, Mark, as Al talked about, a spectrum. It's a pretty big spectrum of viewpoints on all these things. Um, and you can still be in the futurist camp. Uh, some of those theological positions you probably have not heard of as much, and maybe you don't even know the dispensational things, but there's you know progressive dispensationalism, uh, covenantal premillennialism, classic or historic premillennialism. You can kind of you know see all this gets into these you know twenty five cent words, uh, or maybe they're up to a dollar fifty now I think so. with inflation. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, and you know trying to understand all this stuff. So given this spectrum, what I want to do is I want to focus on those points on which all futurists agree. So you're going to get differences you know in the details, but they all follow this idea. They generally agree on the importance of Revelation 119, which says, Therefore, write the things which you saw, and the things which are, and the things which are about to take place after these things. From this verse, futurists identify three categories for the rest of the text of Revelation. The things that are, or things which you saw, are the things that John saw at the beginning and the end, the beginning of his visions, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. The things which are, are the chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches. And the things which are about to take place form the bulk of this apocalyptic, prophetic vision. And visions that start in chapter 4 and go on through part of chapter 22. Uh, that these visions take place after the things which are, which are 
is stated explicitly in 4.1, after these things I looked, and behold, an open door in heaven, and, former, and the former voice that I had heard, like a trumpet speaking with me, was saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after these things. So that idea, that breakdown, is common to most futurists. The second point that they have in common is they all agree that the thousand years of the millennium in chapter 20 is a long period of time during which Jesus reigns on earth. Uh, and, they, and this will happen prior to the white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20 and the creation of the new heavens and new earth in chapters 21 and 22. In theolo- theological terms, all these people would be uh, premillennialists. That is, they hold that Christ's return will precede and precipitate the establishment of, of a millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. Uh, kind of put it another way, the return of Jesus is before or pre uh, his millennial reign on earth that's described in Revelation 20. This places all futurists, really, in opposition to post-millennialists who uh, hold the return of Christ will come after the millennium, which will be inaugurated by the effort, efforts of the church to, to Christianize culture. Um, it's not held, there's still some of those guys around. It was really popular in the 1800s. Uh, and also it's a difference uh, their difference with amillennialists or non-millennialists another similar term who hold the kingdom reign of Christ is within the heart of the believer in the collective church the biggest debate amongst the futurists and this becomes kind of gets to some of what Al was talking about is what it means to literally interpret <laughs> revelation while holding fast to the authority of scripture for many classic dispensationalists, the visions in the in, in the most of the book are revelations about future historic events that John describes as best he can, given his own historic setting. Uh, the goal is to interpret the text as literally as possible. Uh, for example, just taking the 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20 uh, should be taken literally as 1,000 years of 365 days. Now, most, if not uh, many, if not most, of the commentators who are futurists but outside of this more classic dispensationalism uh, recognize the importance of Revelation as apocalyptic in genre. Uh, that means that that their the focus here is on symbolism, and for them, the the grammatical historical interpretation means accepting the symbolic character of this literature. And to use the same example, they would view the number 1,000 as symbolic of a large number. So Revelation 20, where it's used there, stands in for a long period of time that's not really definite in terms of what's, what's there. And you can extend that to lots of things in Revelation. Similarly, classic dispensationalists interpret John's vision as strictly chronological. Uh, so you, each one represents a very specific historical event or things that are going on. Uh, progressive dispensationalists, non-dispensational futurists find nothing inherently inconsistent in contrast to that with interpreting these various visions as cyclical or recursive, which was much more common to the literature of the first century in not just Revelation, but in lots of places. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, re, it's a revelation or an understanding that looks at Revelation more like the Old Testament prophets. Because John claimed right at the beginning that these are the words of a prophecy. So you got, you know, not just a letter, 
not just prophecy, and, but it's apocalyptic as well, but you can't really focus on any one of those to the exclusion of the others. The final point on which futurist interpreters revelation are united in a, is affirming that the tribulation period preceding the return of Jesus, there's a, you know, going to be some things happening there, the millennial kingdom will be there on earth, and the final judgment followed by the creation of the new heaven and new earth. These are all historical events that will occur, but not yet. They're in the future. So I hope with that description and some of the things that Al mentioned, you can see that a lot of what we get just in general view, I think, in the culture of what Revelation is saying is a mixture of a lot of these things, and which makes it even harder to sort out where the theology of each one of them is. Which takes us to... The idealist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Obviously, you can already understand why so few pastors ever preach (laughs) on the book of Revelation. Uh, There's so much ground to cover. Uh, And it's career limiting, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, career limiting, very good. And and I'll also interject here that we're going to pick up this format again next week, and and, and we're going to have some questions uh, for each other about some of these different understandings and interpretations. If you have any questions about some of these, feel free to ask those in between. But the idealist approach uh, was first introduced, uh, as far as we can tell, by Origen in the the mid-3rd century. So this goes back quite a ways. Uh, he's considered one of the most influential theologians in the early church. His, his view of an idealist approach was passed on to Augustine, who went on to um, uh, encourage and, and teach many, many others. So this has been around for a long time. So whereas the, the preterist view suggests that most of the visions apply to the past, prior to AD 70 probably, um, the futurist holds that most of the visions deal with events in the future. Uh, the idealist view holds that the, the most logical understanding of Revelation, the most consistent way to interpret uh, or make sense of the book is to look at it primarily through a symbolic or spiritual interpretation. I mean, it is heavily symbolic. So that should help guide our understanding of the book. So what this means is that the visions themselves do not refer to a specific event or um, specific events or specific times uh, the, the descriptions of the beast, descriptions of the Antichrist, are not tied to specific people necessarily. No, oh, I mean it's not the Pope. <laughs> it was the Pope at one point, though. It changes every generation. Instead, the idealist understanding is that the visions of, of persecution, the visions uh, of the, the characters, the depic- depictions of the vis- various characters and, and beasts within those visions. They all refer to types of individuals or types of events, uh, which some of which have already occurred, have been occurring throughout history, and will continue to occur until Jesus comes. So I would argue that we tend to uh, miss this viewpoint. It's not kind of our go-to way to understand this, because our experience in the West has largely been free from persecution. So we look at the persecution that is to come. When around the world, they would argue, uh, I don't think you guys are paying attention. There's persecution going on everywhere else. So in short, I think the idealist would say Revelation is largely allegorical in that what it reveals or makes known is this hidden, non-visible spiritual battle that takes place around us all the time. 
and has always taken place. From the garden forward, Satan has been trying to undo what God has done. And this has been the pattern from the beginning. Just as there have been and prophecies uh, and, and fulfillment of the Redeemer, there has been Satan and his little helpers trying to stop it all along the way. So this message of a spiritual battle, what, what's portrayed in Revelation, is a call to endurance and perseverance and worship among the saints. And so then it becomes applicable to all Christians at all times, in every church age, in every circumstance. For example, the idealists would hold that each generation may well have an antichrist or antichrists of some sort world leaders or, or empires who set themselves up opposed to God. Each generation will have some who receive the lie or believe into the lie of the great deceiver. And they follow Satan into rebellion against God. Each generation will face natural disasters that are likely signs of God's judgment and his call to repentance and, and to get people to wake up. Each generation of believers will face persecution and trial and judgment of some kind. Each generation will have martyrs who willingly die for the cause of Christ. This has always been the case, and it will continue to be the case until Jesus returns. So really, I think it's interesting what we're seeing here in Revelation is the same pattern that we saw in the Old Testament, the history of Israel. The Israel, Israel started off as a group of people walking in covenant with God until they didn't. And then there was trial and tribulation and judgment, and then they would come back. And then it didn't take very long before they fell out of favor with God again, and they rebelled. It, this, is a, this is a repetition of that same cycle that we're seeing through, through time. So according to the idealists, I think Revelation just kind of pulls the curtain back on God's plan, and it shows us this cycle of human behavior, how, how Satan has tried to take advantage of our own stubbornness and our own willfulness, and how God has had this factored into his plan from the very beginning. The idealist interprets Revelation as a depiction of the ongoing struggle between God and his people versus Satan and those who follow him. And the battle started in the garden. It will eventually come to its God-ordained conclusion in another garden at some predetermined date, which we are not privy to, <laughs> as much as that annoys us. <laughs> so... As I said, we're going to do some more questions. We're kind of running out of time this week. But we'll do pick up some more questions next week. Um, but I, I, I do want to say that uh, we're going to kind of pick up on, on maybe some questions and answers about this, these interpretations. We're also going to spend some time looking at some of the primary symbols um, and numbers that we find in Revelation and what those mean. So we're going to try to unpack as much as we can before we get into the book so we're not having to constantly reinforce here's what the number seven means and here's what the lampstand means and um, so we'll have time to go through all that next week um, but for today I just want to say you know the big takeaway for us um, is we're not altogether sure that it matters which of these views that you hold <laughs> unless you decide that your particular viewpoint is more important than salvation um, or that salvation depends on having the right understanding the right interpretation of the end times. If, if, if it's that kind of an issue for you, I'm just going to say it, you got it wrong. I'm happy to discuss that with you more in detail. Um, and, and we're not trying to convince you of anything. If you land on one of those particular things or at some point on the spectrum amongst those, that's okay. We're, we're happy to discuss that. It's not going to be an issue that we divide over. 
So next week, we'll pick up this same format again. Um, we'll talk about symbols and, and numbers. Uh, if you have any questions about what we've covered today or what's going to happen next week, then please feel free to contact us. We'll try to um, address those things. Um, and I just want to close with this things that we can all agree on, things that we should all trust and believe in, um, and that is Jesus is going to return to earth. Yep. Uh, whichever timeline you happen to hold to, he is going to come back. Bodily. Bodily. He's going to come back bodily. And we don't know when, but we know it's going to be quick. In a moment. In the twinkling, twinkling of an eye. We know that people will face a final judgment. Even if they have to be bodily resurrected to do that, there will be a final judgment. And we will all stand before God. Uh, and we know that the fallen creation is going to be redeemed in the form of a new heaven and a new earth. So there's a lot that we can agree on, a lot that we can look forward to, um, even as we try to make sense of all of this strangeness in the book of Revelation. Uh, so let me pray. We'll do one more quick song, and then we'll be out of here for today. Lord, we have so many questions. <laughs> we have so many questions. Um, but we are grateful for this uh, revealed word, for these these messages that you have left for us. And, and Father, I pray as we go forward, especially in this book of Revelation, that we come with open hearts and open minds and we are truly um, aware of or try to be aware of whatever um, whatever baggage, whatever viewpoint we bring into it. Uh, and we are able to put that aside and try to understand Scripture the way that was intended. So we can truly say that, that blessed are those who hear it and blessed are those who read it. Uh, we thank you for the, the opportunity to gather together in your name. We know that there are oppressed peoples and oppressed churches all over the country, all over the world, rather, who are, um, who are already uh, firmly entrenched uh, in this idea of persecution and suffering, while we have been relatively free from it here. Um, and we thank you for your grace in our life, but we know, uh, just based on your word, that there will be changes to come to that. And so I pray that you continue to build us up, to encourage us, uh, to strengthen us, um, to help us be better ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ because the world will need it in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.